We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Daniel, come. Well, good morning. Morning. Uh, Like Pastor Josh said, my name is Daniel, and it is an absolute delight and uh, a joy to get to be with you all here this morning. Uh, to get to preach God's word, not just to myself, um, but, but to all of you as well. Um, and um, we're in 1 Peter 1, 13 to 21. And before we get into what the main point of the text is, I'd like to propose a question. The question is, how often do you connect the idea of hope and holiness? How often do you connect the idea of hope to holiness, specifically as it pertains to our hope in Christ. So does your hope in Christ drive you towards holiness in Christ? Should knowing Christ move you towards holiness in Christ? Well, that is the question that Peter answers for us in 1 Peter 1, 13 to 21. So the main idea of our passage this morning is that our gospel of hope should cause gospel holiness. Our gospel of hope should cause gospel holiness. And before we dive into verses 13 to 21, it's important to give a a brief context to the verses preceding our passage today because it's vital in understanding where we're at in verses 13 to 21. And to do that, we must begin by looking at the first word of verse 13. The first word of verse 13 is the word therefore. And anytime you come across the word therefore, it's always important and helpful to ask yourself the question, what is the therefore there for? Because the therefore is significant in that the word therefore holds within itself the the impact of the gospel that Peter has just spent the 12 preceding verses unpacking for us. Verses 1 through 12 were a long stint on what the gospel is and what this hope is that all Christians have. Because Christians are people of hope. And this is especially significant when we know the the, the context behind the writing of 1 
Peter. Because we see in verse 1 that Peter is writing this letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion, which uh, are are different groups of Christians living in what would be modern-day Turkey. His original audience was various groups of Christians living as sojourners and exiles in a land that wasn't their own. Now, why is that important for us? It's important for us to know because as we read this passage, as as we look at this, and as we move forward in our passage this morning, it's important for us to know that just like the exiles and the sojourners that Peter is writing to in his, his current audience, it's important for us to know that we as Christians today are like them, sojourners in a land that's not our final home. We too are elect exiles, and it's because of this elect exile nature where we're living in that this hope that we can grasp grasp so steadily, this hope in Jesus that that Peter talks about. And he he continues on from verse 1 in the greeting, this wonderful picture of the Trinity. As one commentator put it, we as chosen pilgrims are foreknown by God the Father, we're set apart and sanctified by the Spirit, and we've been cleansed by Christ's blood and forgiven of our sins. Right, So this world is not our home, and we eagerly await the day that Christ Jesus comes back to make all things new. And that is our hope. Christians are people of hope as we await the return of Christ. So then what then does Peter have to say about this hope? Well, in verse 3, if you look with me, it says we are born again into a living hope. Our hope is not a dead thing. Our hope is not a wish. It's not an empty hope, but it's a hope that is alive. It's concrete. It's built upon real events. Our hope in Jesus comes through his resurrection. So when we read the very first word, the word therefore, we should look back to the previous 12 verses where Peter has just laid out for us this precious gospel of hope that every Christian possesses. Peter shows us many different promises that comes with this gospel of hope. Our hope is a living hope. Our King Jesus is not dead, but he is alive, reigning at the right hand of the Father right now. We have an inheritance in Christ Jesus that doesn't perish, it doesn't fade, and it's guarded and kept in heaven by God, ready to be revealed in the last time. But it doesn't stop there. Our hope of ours is so potent that it sustains us through various trials. Not only in the good times, but the bad. And this morning, I I read an article by a a pastor in China, and it just really struck me as as he was describing what it's like to be a pastor in China. It really struck me that... um, As we live in this country with many wonderful freedoms and uh, we're blessed in a lot of different ways, um, there are people in different parts of the world who who don't have those same freedoms. And this living hope that Peter describes um, is what sustains them. Uh, This hope in Christ Jesus is what sustains them. And it's humbling. And that's why it's important to say all these things before getting into verses 13 to 21 that, make, that make, might make us feel like the gospel is just a bunch of commands. We need to understand that it is out of our hope 
in Jesus that we live obedient lives. It is out of our love for Christ that we serve him faithfully. It's because we have been born again, born again into a living hope that we walk in obedience. So that is what is leading up to verses 13 to 21. And we would know that if, if we had a sermon series uh, that started in 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12, we would know as we enter into verse 13, we would have seen the unpacking nature of the gospel that Peter has unfolded for us. So then let us start again in verse 13. You can look with me there now. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter, having just filled our hearts and having just filled our minds with wonder and worship in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is now beginning to turn the corner and give us an imperative. And the imperative is to set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he likewise challenges us that to do this, we must prepare our minds for action and be sober-minded. Another translation says to gird up your loins. <laughs> and the, the image that Peter is drawing up here of preparing your minds for action, girding up your loins, is one that, that can seem to, to be lost on the, the 21st century Christian. Because in Peter's time, most people wore robes. We don't really wear robes anymore. But if you can imagine it, if somebody's wearing robes and they're trying to run or do hard labor, it would be pretty easy to trip or to get your robes dirty. And so the, the idea that Peter is conveying here, girding up your loins, preparing your minds for action, is this idea of pulling up the robes of your mind, girding up your loins so that you can do hard work. Hoping in Jesus takes discipline, especially in trials of various kinds. Setting our hope in Jesus daily takes discipline. It takes work. It's hard work, and there are a lot of Christians, myself included, who struggle to prepare our minds for action day in and day out. We do not tend to discipline our minds to think on Jesus as our living hope. We tend to wake up, and the first thing we do is look at our phones, look at, look at Instagram, go on Twitter, watch YouTube, as opposed to remembering Christ setting our hope actively on Christ. Imagine if every day when you woke up, the first thing you did was to prepare your minds for action by setting your hope in Jesus. Imagine. That's what Peter is calling us to. Set your hope in Jesus. Peter also tells us to be sober-minded. Being sober-minded here is communicating to us that we need to be in our right mind and self-controlled. He instructs us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Christ Jesus by being self-controlled and fully able to think and act on this hope in Christ. 
We must have our minds fixed on Christ. But please hear me rightly on this. Peter is not saying that our hope in Christ comes from our obedience or being disciplined or by working hard. No, that's legalism. Our hope, our salvation in Christ doesn't come from obedience, but it comes from Jesus and his precious blood alone. It comes from Christ alone, right? We're not saved by our works. God doesn't save us by how much good we do in this life. That's why Peter spends 12 whole verses before our passage today by hashing out all the beautiful aspects of the gospel. That No, it isn't our works that saves us. It's Christ who is our living hope. You yourself aren't your own living hope. Jesus is. Only Jesus can save us. However, as Christians, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone, we must be active in our obedience to God. Our hope and salvation in Christ should change the way that you live your life. So set your hope in Jesus. With Peter having firmly established that we should set our hope on the grace of the Lord Jesus, we can move on to verse 14. So you can look with me at verse 14 now. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter Peter now speaks to the radically new nature of the believer. He addresses Christians as children. He addresses Christians as children, and not just any type of child, but an obedient child. We are now new creations in Christ, and we are now a part of a different kind of family. We weren't just a part of a family over here, and now we're just over here. No, we've been radically transformed into a different kind of family. And Peter points out how different we were when we were once dead in our sin and living in ignorance and in the passions of our flesh. When we were once enslaved to our passions and living in ignorance. We were children of wrath and enslaved to and worshipped our sin. Romans 5 says we were once enemies of God. So Peter doesn't shy away from reminding his readers, of reminding us that we, what we once were before Christ. And I just want to say, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I would challenge you to consider what it would look like to trust in him today. If you've walked in here off the street, if you were invited by a friend, or if you just stumbled in here somehow, I would I would urge you and challenge you to consider what it would look like to follow Jesus. Jesus is our hope. We have hope as Christians in a life after death. We have a hope, not just a future hope, but a present hope. A hope that doesn't just stick with us when we're living life really great and everything's going awesome, but we have this living hope even in various trials. When we suffer when we experience depression and pain, when it seems like there's this domino effect of bad thing after bad thing after bad thing after bad thing, Christ Jesus is our living hope through 
all of those things. And we can rest in that. We can rest in the fact that Christ is our living hope. And he doesn't leave us to ourselves, but he sent his very own son, Jesus, the God-man, to be our perfect sacrifice, to be our perfect substitute. Jesus lived the perfect, obedient life that we cannot live. He was and is perfectly holy. On the final day when we stand before God and he looks at us and asks us, why should I let you into heaven? Our answer should be because of Christ. He was and is perfect. And he was and is perfect for you. He was holy for your sake. Because we can't be perfectly holy, and so we needed Jesus to come and be holy for us. And one of the benefits of being a Christian is that we're not saved into loneliness or isolation, but we're saved into God's family. We are all children of the Lord. That's what the church is. Now, as children of God, we worship God and God alone, and no longer living in the passions of our former ignorance. And it's really important because where does Peter anchor this command that all of our conduct is supposed to be holy? Where does he root, where does Peter root our call to holiness? He roots it in God, specifically in God's character. God is holy, therefore you are. Be holy. So we have two different ways of life here. The first way is one of living in sinful passions and ignorance. And the second is a life of holiness and knowledge of God. Of being found in God's family. The Christian is in the second way of life, right? Because we've been born again into a living hope. Which means that in all of our conduct, we're supposed to be holy. We're not supposed to be conformed any longer to the passions that once so violently gripped us. And when when Peter says all of our conduct, he doesn't just mean 99% of our conduct, but he means all of it. From our morning greetings to our nightly goodbyes, from life-giving circumstances to life-draining circumstances, from work to play, in singleness, and in marriage, in business deals, and on the playground, we are supposed to be holy in all of our conduct. Growing up, uh, 10-year-old Daniel used to think that my mom's favorite phrase, uh, at least probably wasn't, but it's what I thought was her favorite thing to say, was, uh, because I said so. And any time that I would question her about why did I have to clean my room, why did I have to wash the dishes, why did I have to go do this, she'd always say, well, because I said so. And when we read this passage, we, we could see how God could have said, be holy because I said so. And that would have been perfectly okay. And we would have had to have followed it just the same. However, God doesn't say, be holy because I said so. He says, be holy because I am holy. 
His reason is because He Himself is holy. He is holiness itself. And Peter quotes here from Leviticus, where God tells his people to be holy because he is holy. Right? And, and, and holiness means this, this otherness, this separateness. God wanted his people in the Old Testament to be separate from the world, uh, and not a, not a monastic or isolation kind of separateness, but, a, but, but an otherness, a separateness. And so too, so too does God want us to be holy, to be separate from the world, not in isolation, but to be different, to be holy. And we're to be holy in all our conduct because God is holy. He is the author and perfecter of our faith because he is our heavenly father. And I know when I was a kid, I, I looked up to my father, my earthly father. Um, and I'm sure many of us had this sense of awe and this sense of wonder at our dads. Uh, maybe, maybe you didn't have a good relationship with your dad. Uh, maybe you don't even have a relationship with your dad. But if you're here this morning, you need to know that you have a heavenly father. You have a heavenly father, and he is good, and he is perfect. And he loves you, and he is holy. So be like him. As a child of God, be like your heavenly father. I mean, he called you. He called you to himself. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. We should, be, want, to be like, we should want to be like our Heavenly Father because, because of what he's done for us. In Emmaus Church, look to your elder brother Christ, who was perfectly obedient for you. As a child of God, we must act like a child of God. We are in a new family now. We have changed. We have been born again. Why should you want those passions of your former ignorance? We're living in a new family now. Do you want to be holy like God is holy? Do you ever think about your, the fact that you are God's child and what the implications that holds for your life, what that means now about for your identity? Being in Christ means that you not only have a living hope, but you have a heavenly Father who's holy. And we are called to be holy like him. So this now leads us into verse 17. So look with me now at verse 17. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time in exile, throughout the time of your exile. Well, this idea of fear seems kind of like a strange concept to the Christian because most of the time it seems like we want to put at odds this idea of fearing the Lord and simultaneously having joy in the Lord, right? This both fearing and loving, fearing and being joyful, it, seem, it seems odd to us, but it's actually not. They are not opposing concepts. We see in the book of Proverbs over and over again the instruction that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of 
knowledge and understanding. That the Lord gives understanding to those who fear him. That the fear of the Lord brings life. Psalm 128 says this. How happy is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You will surely eat what your hands have worked for. You will be happy and it will go well for you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like young olive trees around your table. In this very way, the man who fears the Lord will be blessed. Christians and non-Christians both have a very different kind of fear of the Lord. The Lord is still the judge of both the Christian and the non-Christian, but the Christian is covered in the precious blood of Christ with all sins paid for by him. The Christian does indeed see God as impartial judge because we know that God chose us to be in Christ before the foundations of the world, not because of anything we did, but because of his love and according to his will and his gracious sovereignty. God impartially chose before the foundation of the world all who would be found in Christ. And this is very different from the kind of fear the non-believer has. Those not found in Christ. Those rather found in themselves. They have no hope. Their fear is not like that of a child to his heavenly father. Because their pronouncement is guilty and their sentence is not life but death. And if you are here today and you are not in Christ, I would strongly urge you to call out to him. Repent and trust in Jesus. Our living hope is good and it is beautiful and it is glorious and it is packed with so much. Our inheritance is not defiled. It doesn't fade. It is glorious. It is glorious. Friends, this living hope that we have sustains and preserves and provides so much joy. And we were once enemies of God. And yet God sent his son, Jesus, to die for us so that we might be found in him and have this hope, this living hope. The fear of the Lord serves as a help to us in our time as exiles. This land is not our own. This world is not our home. We patiently wait for the day Christ comes back and makes all things new. But until then, Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear. And not an unhealthy fear, and not a joyless fear, but a reverent fear, full of joy and awe of your heavenly Father and judge. And this leads us into the final section of our passage. Look with me at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown both before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead 
and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You, Christian, have been ransomed from your feudal ways inherited by your forefathers. You have been ransomed from your former sinful ways by the precious blood of Christ into an inheritance, into salvation. And it wasn't with silver or gold. You weren't bought with silver or gold, which are things that do perish. But you were bought with blood, and not just any blood, but precious blood, spotless blood, without blemish blood. And not just any precious blood, but the blood of Jesus himself. The precious blood like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus was the perfect and final once-for-all sacrifice for your sin. Jesus' precious blood is enough to cover all your sin, past, present, and future. And we know that an object is worth only as much as someone is willing to pay for it with. Right? I could walk into a Whataburger and I could buy an A1 Thick and Hearty for $7. I could walk into a Best Buy and I could buy a brand new TV for $300. I could walk into a car dealership and buy a brand new car for $15,000. I could even walk into uh, you know, an open house, and I could put an offer on a house for $200,000. But what did Christ pay? What did Christ ransom you with? Did Christ ransom you with just a bunch of money? Was Jesus just carrying a big sack of money when he ransomed you? No. No, Christ ransomed you with his precious blood. And if you're sitting here today and you struggle with finding worth or value in yourself, maybe you struggle finding any worth in yourself. Maybe you hate yourself. You need to know that Christ ransomed you from your sin, not with silver or gold, but with his own life. You have inherent worth, not just because you've been stamped with the image of God, but because you've also been bought with the precious blood of God. Verse 18. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus paid for your sin for your sake. He did it so that your faith and hope 
are in himself, are in God. Christ, the God-man, gave up his own precious blood for us so that we might be found in him. And this was not a last-minute plan. This was not plan B. This wasn't the backup plan. This wasn't the plan in the back of God's mind. No, it was the plan that was foreknown before the foundation of the world that you would be found in Christ, that Christ Jesus would come, spill his precious blood for your sake so that you might be ransomed from your sin, so that he might be the atoning sacrifice, the substitute that we could not be for your sake so that we could live a life of joyful obedience to our king, Christ our king, knowing that we are children of God, that we've been bought with a price so incredibly more valuable than anything we can conceive. Silver and gold are like the worldwide standard, what people think of when they think of money and wealth. And Christ's precious blood is worth far more than that. Far more. And when you realize you've been bought with the precious, spotless, perfect blood of Jesus, it should change you. It should become so clear then who you once were before Christ. It should become clear then the futile way in, what, in, in which you once lived, in the passions of your former ignorance. But now, having been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, you are a child. You are a child of God. And you're called to live according to his purposes. Our gospel of hope should cause gospel holiness. Our gospel of hope should cause gospel holiness. So it is fitting then as we enter into our time of communion to be reminded of the precious blood of Christ. What a beautiful picture the Lord's Supper is then to us of Christ's sacrifice. That we get to participate together in this meal. Jesus commanded us to take the bread and to take the cup and do it in remembrance of him. To see the bread and to see the cup to understand the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Christ and be reminded that we were ransomed from our sin by the shed blood and broken body of Christ. However, this meal today is a meal only for those who have placed their faith in Christ and repented of their sin. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, we're glad you're here, but we would ask that you would remain in your seat as we take this meal because for you, your action here is not to take this meal, but rather to take Christ himself. And if you want to know what you can do or how you can know Jesus or how to take those first steps, you can ask any person who comes up here and takes this meal. You can ask anyone what it means to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are so thankful for your love for us. God, we are so humbled. We are so humbled by your holiness, 
God, that you would love wretches such as us. God, that you would even consider sending your own son, Jesus, to be the atoning sacrifice for us. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this living hope that we have day in and day out on days when we don't feel like we can go on and in days when we feel like we don't have hope, God, remind us of our living hope in Christ Jesus. Lord God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your holiness. We thank you that you have saved us out of our futile ways and into your family by the precious blood of Christ. We thank you for Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com.